If you've come here this morning struggling to believe whether God not only does but can keep his word, this account is for you. Let's begin by seeing, number one, God's blessing. God's blessing. Do you want to know God? Not just know about him. Know him. Well, first, you must know what God is like from his word. You cannot guess what God is like. God reveals himself on his terms, not ours. In his word, in Christ. And to know God for the Christian means he will teach you, even through suffering, that his work and his ways are not like we expect. That's what he's doing with Jacob. Jacob is the man who from heaven's vantage point is in covenant relationship with the true God. He is the man who possesses promises of of land and of offspring, of blessing through him to the world. But what is he from the world's vantage point? He's a man trapped in a foreign land, in unfair circumstances, stuck. He can't get out of them. Now, last week we saw that even in the midst of a lot of sin, God built Jacob's family. And this week we see in the midst of a lot of sin, God builds Jacob's property. We begin here in verse 25 with this marker, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, his favored wife is now having a son. Jacob is ready to go. And he says to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Jacob is reduced to asking, begging for his own family. And then Laban responds here that he's learned through some kind of divination. We don't know what. The Lord has blessed Laban because of Jacob. He wants to keep Jacob around. So verse 28, he says, name your wages and he'll give it. And then Jacob recounts in verses 29 and 30 how he has served Laban well. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. And then Laban, suddenly the generous man, asked in verse 31, what shall I give you? Jacob will not let this greedy, deceitful man give him anything. Instead, he says he will pasture Laban's flock if Laban, verse 32, will allow him to take as his wages all the speckled, spotted, and dark sheep and speckled goats. And verse 33, if Jacob takes anything more than that, it will be counted as stolen. Laban cheerfully agrees in verse 34, but then in verse 35, he removes all of those sheep and goat from the flock and puts them in the charge of his sons. And just to be sure, Jacob can't get any of them back. Verse 36, Laban sets three days journey between himself and Jacob. Laban is a man who had a lot less before Jacob showed up, and now he has a lot more. And he's also a man who sees his son-in-law, his family, as nothing more than an indentured servant. Jacob is a slave. 
Verse 26, Jacob says, served, service. Verse 29, how I have served you. For Laban, everything is an economic relationship. And yet Laban knows from the Lord that he's been blessed because of Jacob. And then Jacob affirms it in verse 30. The Lord has blessed you wherever I have turned. Here's Jacob, the man with God's promise, a blessing. He's totally at the mercy of Laban. Now, in one sense, Laban owes him nothing. Remember, Jacob did agree to this 14 years of indentured servitude. But come on, Jacob is family. Laban agreed that Jacob could have this smaller, unwanted portion of this flock, but he even takes that away from him, such that if Jacob wants them, he'll have to stay longer and breed them. Here's Laban finding his way to keep Jacob under his power. If Jacob wants property, it will be a slow, hard process to get it. And in the meantime, Laban gets richer. What happens next? Look down to verse 37. With the flock that is left, Jacob uses some kind of breeding scheme here. He takes sticks from these different trees with white streaks in them. He places them, verse 38, in front of these watering troughs because the flocks bred when they came to to drink. Uh, If you knew that, that's just remarkable. I had no idea. Somehow, verse 39, when these flocks bred in front of these sticks, they brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted lambs and kids, which are baby goats. Again, do not ask me to explain any of this. The point is not that you understand this ancient breeding practice. Jacob separates his share there from Laban's in verse 40. We don't know why, but Jacob sets aside some of the streaked and dark-colored animals for Laban. Now, those were supposed to be Jacob's. Shrewdly, Jacob here uses this breeding scheme that he's devised back in verse 37. He doesn't break the terms of the agreement, but he uses it to breed the strong of the flock so that verse 42, the stronger offspring are Jacob's and the weaker's are Laban's. What do we learn in verse 43? Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. The breeding system is not the point. God's work is. Jacob is God's chosen man, the possessor of promises, the possessor of God's presence, God's promise of blessing through him to the world. And yet he's been in an indentured servitude relationship for over a decade. That's his reality. He's been deceived, manipulated, Laban stole from him. Jacob is powerless. Who could fathom that the promise of God's blessing from God himself would look like this? God's ways are not like man's ways. From the veriest, from veriest, the very earliest days, God is teaching his people that my promises to bless you are surprising. They will not look like what you expect, but that does not mean he's not being faithful. Jacob is powerless 
broken family, nothing more than a slave. That's the small picture. The big picture is that with 11 sons, this is not just the beginning of a family. This is the beginning of a nation. And the man whom God has promised land now has wealth, property, and it's greatly increasing. I wonder if you've slipped into some kind of shallow and unbiblical thinking that because there is suffering or hardship or unfairness in your life, that somehow God has forgotten his promise. That somehow God has forgotten you. Here is a text that reorients our eyes. I don't know the circumstances of of each one of your lives this morning. I do know that from this text, God does some of his greatest salvation work in circumstances that his people would never ask God for. That we certainly wouldn't arrange for ourselves, but that God planned down to the very detail. Not for bad, but for blessing. What ways are you doubting the Lord or are you tempted to doubt God this morning? Why don't you identify that in your mind? I want you to consider that doubt. In that doubt, you are believing something else is more sure than what God has said. When I doubt God's goodness in my life, I am believing I know better how to do God to myself, how to do better than God to myself, or in my situation, than God himself does. So doubt is not just uncertainty about one proposition, it's the beginning of belief in another. Why do you believe something other than what God has said? Question, interrogate that something in your your mind, whatever it is. And question it just as you've questioned the truth that you've begun to doubt. Do you know, do you you see better than God does? Whatever it is, your circumstance this morning, whatever it is that doesn't make sense, rest will be found not when you figure out why, but trusting in the who. Who we are as mortal, sinful, temporary beings who our God is as eternally wise and good. Jacob probably struggled to understand, but God was keeping his promises. He was blessing Jacob and through Jacob, others. Leave room in your doubt for certainty that you don't know all that God knows. You don't see all that God sees. This text screams at us. God does not go back on his commitment to his people. Jacob's sin has been so evident to us, but God bound himself to Jacob, this weak, frail man, and he's blessing Jacob. God does not break his commitments. It's a path we would have never expected. God is not failing to keep one of his promises. In the earliest days, God is teaching his people that the way that he goes about fulfilling his purposes to bless are surprising. Here's God's man in circumstances none of us would ask for. God's man looks cursed, not blessed. God's man is outnumbered. He's cheated. 
He looks to the world as nothing more than a slave. And yet through him, God is bringing blessing to the world, even his enemies. What is God doing? Clearly preparing the world, his people for his son, who himself would be outnumbered, cheated, and would look like a disgraced slave to the world, but through whom God would mediate blessing to the world, especially his enemies. On the cross, Jesus Christ looked cursed, but there Christ was winning spiritual life, riches in Christ, in salvation that would have been unthinkable. In the suffering and the hardship of his own son, God was keeping his promises. And just as Laban's own plans were being used against him, so Satan's best plan would be used against him. Friends, God was using Jacob's horrible circumstances to bless the world. Much more did God do this in Christ. Jesus obeyed the Father as the sinless son in the most unfair circumstances and in even the more impossible circumstance of death, Jesus was raised. If you think that Jacob was in a hard place being stuck in this foreign place, what would you say to Jesus hanging half naked on a cross? God delights to work powerfully and surprisingly to save his people. How surprising is it that God's greatest blessing, salvation itself, is not by your works, but all of grace, all of God's power. What are you relying on for your salvation this morning? Really, what are you relying on? If you'd have looked at Jacob through the eyes of this world, you would have just seen weakness. It's the same with Jesus on the cross. You would have only seen weakness, but behind them was the blessing of God. Come to Christ by faith. Repent of any other salvation outside of Christ that you're seeking and believe Christ and his work. The ultimate blessing of God is to be reconciled to God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, whenever you come to a a circumstance or a point that you never fathomed for your life, remember, there is no circumstance for our God that keeps him from accomplishing his salvation promises. These hopeless circumstances pry us away from our small, petty hopes to our God on whom our souls can anchor for time and eternity. That was true for Jacob, and it's true for us. God's blessing. Now let's see God's providence. God's providence. That's the second point if you're Taking notes, God's providence. And we're going to go from 31.1 to verse 21. What happens now that Jacob has some wealth? Jacob hears, verse 1, Laban's son saying that he had taken all that was their father's and gained his wealth from him. And then Jacob sees, verse 2, that Laban did not regard him with favor as he did before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So now it's God's providentially ordered time to go home. I think God's providence, if we're honest, is so often hard to see in the moment. I mean, how many of you have lost your car keys? If you're like me, 
you realize later, often they were just right in front of your eyes. You didn't see them. You looked right past them. Hardest beauty, the greatest glory is often right in front of our eyes. Smallest detail missed when it's right in front of our eyes. We can't see it. But when we look back after the time, its significance becomes more clear to us. It was not a coincidence that Jacob was in earshot of Laban's sons when they were speaking this way. That's God's providence. Jacob is now not just in fair circumstances, now they're dangerous. And then yet again, God graciously appears, telling him, go back to his father and his family's land. I will be with you. So verse 4, Jacob calls Rachel and Leah. Notice Rachel is first. She's still a favored wife. He calls them out into the field. This is a big conversation. And he cleverly tells them and makes his case in verse 5, your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Verse 6, I served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. He recounts how God blessed the breeding of the flocks there in verse 8, with this conclusion in verse 9, thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. He goes on to tell them what is news to us there beginning in verse 10. Look at verse 10. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here, am, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So brilliantly arranged, the narrator allows us to see the providence of God after the time in ways we wouldn't have seen it at first. Now we've seen in Genesis that God's providence is God's purposeful sovereignty for his glory, for the good of his people. It's in the biggest events of the world and it's in the smallest details of your life. And God's providence must be studied. We look for it with the eye of faith. Jacob seems to see by the eye of faith the way God has ordered events in his life. He recounts it. Your father cheated, cheated, changed my ways, but God, but God, but God, God sovereignly worked for his good and his glory. And then this dream, it wasn't recounted in the last chapter. We learn here what Jacob knew, that the angel of God had appeared to him, made clear to him that it was God at work in bringing about his success and giving him these stronger, these more valuable sheep and, and goats. Why does he leave then with, with servants and camels and donkeys? Not because of some natural power or clever breeding scheme, but because of God's supernatural power to bring it about. And did you notice here how twice the, the Lord said, verse 3, I will be with you. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. It was at Bethel that God promised Jacob his presence. I, I think that in all of those years, 
but he was there toiling away. Can you imagine it? Day by day by day, in the midst of very unfair, unjust circumstances, I have to think he he thought to himself, God promised me his presence. My circumstances tell me he is totally absent. And Jacob would have been wrong. God's promise to providentially provide for and be with Jacob for his good are not thwarted by his circumstances. His circumstances were the outworking of them. God was present. He wasn't absent with this man in these dark, unfair, even confusing circumstances. Did God's people need to learn that bedrock foundational truths in the past? Absolutely. Do we need to learn this now? I have a hunch we do. Only one man in all of history was forsaken by God in his darkest moment. And it was God's own son on the cross as he accomplished the plan that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit made before the foundation of the world was laid. Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be. And we won't be. God delights to use circumstances that from our vantage point are impossible for his glory. Let this ring in your ears. Laban did this, but God. Laban did that, but God. Man's most evil intention will not thwart the purposes of God. And our God hasn't changed after all these centuries. I wonder what confuses you this morning. I wonder if you were honest what you'd say, I'm despaired over. Take it to God. Rest in the confidence that he who was with Jacob in these horrible circumstances is with his people in Christ now, working all things for our good, even when at the present time we can't fathom how. He has not abandoned you. He will not abandon you. Not now. Not for all eternity. God has been with Jacob. Now the question is, will Rachel and Leah be with Jacob? Or return to their father? Look at verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left in us to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he sold us. He has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. It is remarkable that just a chapter after these two seem to want to kill each other. Here they agree. They side with Jacob and thus with Jacob's God over their father. Do you see that what Laban meant for his own selfish gain, bargaining his daughters off, using them as an economic bargaining chip, God meant God used to turn them toward each other. And so to leave with Jacob, God's providence never misses a thing. God will not let us ever think that he's not working through even the most wicked acts of human beings in this world. Providence is best seen after the time. When all the facts are known, none of us will ever say, he failed me. 
Whatever the circumstances in your life, you're not in the final chapter yet. Until then, trust in the word you do know from God. So for Jacob, that was God's directly revealed promise to bless him, to be with him, to work through him for the blessing of the world. There's no way Jacob could have seen how that was working out all those years when he thought, my life has gone off the rails. But he could trust. God gave me his word. I don't know how. He'll fulfill it. Same is true for us. What God's word says is more certain than what you are tempted to wrongly believe about your circumstances. That's just 1,177th reason you want to be in the word of God. So that when you find yourself in those circumstances, you don't understand that the word is so deep in your bones that you have a well of truth, a a deep well of truth from which to live from and believe in such circumstances, especially when those circumstances are screaming to you what God has said is a lie. We need God's word. Another thing we should be regularly doing is working to recount God's good providences in our lives. You know, you you can do that in Scripture. You can see how God has worked in the past with His people, and that makes us ready for hard days in the future. Do that in your own life. Details or circumstances you might have overlooked at the time, but you see more clearly now how God was using them. Hey, kids, get back with me. Teenagers, you should thank God for the providence he's given you if you're in a Christian home. That's an eternal blessing from God. If your parents love the Lord and are teaching you about the Lord, that's not just a blessing, it's a stewardship. Ask God to help you to be thankful. If you're not a Christian, why do you think you're here? I mean, if we're, we're honest, not many of us ever plan to come to Ras al Here you are, and now you're suddenly surrounded by all these Christians in this place. Who would have thought it? You know, you're surrounded by a number of people who are in the exact same situation you're in. Could it be that God has purposes in your life that you've not even fathomed yet in this place? Seek the Lord in what may be a foreign place to you. The true God never wastes one second in his world. And then let's consider God's providence for us. It's a church. He's not just allowed us to be here, which is remarkable. He's allowed us to participate in even a small way in what he's doing in this part of the world. We know brothers from Nepal to Ethiopia, from Afghanistan to Egypt, from India to right here in the the UAE. Has the Lord not surprised you? Has he not surprised us together? How clearly we've seen God's purposeful sovereignty for us. In this place, God's providence never fails and it's never thwarted. Look at verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. 
the shearing of sheep was the busiest time of the year for, for shepherds. It required all hands on deck all day long. So Jacob shrewdly used that time to flee. He doesn't know Rachel stole her father's household gods. And did she do this because she was still worshiping them alongside the true God or because household gods were made of costly metals so they were valuable and she wanted the wealth? We're not told. For now, I want you to see that Jacob is leaving this place in a much different place than when he came. He has a family. He has wealth. It's clear to Laban, it's clear to everyone else that the God of Jacob was with Jacob in that place. So now in God's providence, Jacob is gone. But we know Laban. He's not the man that will let him leave without a fight. Let's see, finally, God's protection. God's protection. God's protection. Verses 22 through 55. Jacob is headed home. What next? Well, there in verses 22 through 24, Laban learns, three days late, mind you, that Jacob has fled and he pursues him for seven days, all the way to Gilead. And then God comes to Laban by a dream and says, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And when Laban finally does catch up with Jacob, he says, beginning in verse 26, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Laban has forgotten they're Jacob's wives at this point. He wants to know why Jacob fled secretly and and tricked him because Laban is suddenly this caring family man and he wanted to send them off with songs and a celebration. He wanted to kiss all the grandsons and, and granddaughters. And then verse 29, it's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? This man who's tricked Jacob has the nerve to ask Jacob, why have you tricked me? Jacob, afraid that Laban would take away his own daughters, he does not know that Rachel stole the gods, declares in verse 32, if Laban finds anyone who has his gods, that person shall not live. Now we feel the tension. And then things start to slow down. Verse 33, so Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Laban and his family must have seemed so powerful. They must have had weapons. Otherwise, God would not have had to say to him what he said. Laban himself said, it's in my power to harm him, but God protects Jacob God protects his people. God protected Abraham in the foreign land. Here's God protecting Jacob in the foreign land. 
I just love the way that Laban's false gods are mocked. His idols are stolen. What kind of a strong God can be stolen? And Laban can't even find the stolen gods because they're hidden underneath Rachel in a disgraced way. And in this scene where God is speaking, speaking again and again, he's overruling Laban's plans. Laban's gods don't even have the power to make themselves known. Say, here I am, Laban. They're silent. The God of Jacob goes with his people to foreign lands. He protects his people. He's able to make himself known to whomever, wherever he pleases. Even more, he can stop the wicked purposes of whomever he pleases as well. Jacob's God cannot be stolen. He cannot be hidden away. No matter how powerful this world or people in your life appear to be, the idols of this world are powerless. They're powerless. What does the Lord need to expose in our own hearts this morning? I think we get at that, our own idolatry, when we look back over the last week and we ask ourselves, what made me angry? Now, some of you may actually have in your home statues or images that you worship that are a good luck charm for you. If your God can be stolen, it's not worth being your God. Idols can so comfortably become part of our own lives. We can't fathom our life without those idols. Look at Laban. In part, he travels for seven days to get his gods back. He wants them. What idol do you need to do the work of destroying in your own heart? What step this week will you take to begin to destroy that idol? Christian, it's always true. It's either the true God or the idols. It's never both. God is protecting Jacob. And the idols, they're stolen. They're disgraced. Look down at verse 36 for Jacob's response. He's angry. And he says, What is my offense? What is my sin that you've hotly pursued me? For you've felt through all my goods... What have you found of all your household goods? Set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day, the heat consumed me and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob stands up for himself and for his God. Where would any of us be if the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on our side, had not acted? There is so much God-centered truth and theology in this confrontation with Laban. I think what's amazing is Jacob, he's not perfect, but it's clear he's changed. He never cheated Laban. 
He served him. He, he's not the homeboy he, he once was. He, he contended with wild beasts in that land. And he's confident that God saw and God protected. He was once Laban's servant or slave. Now by the power and the protection of God, he's being raised up to be his superior. The man whose gods have been stolen is seeing firsthand the God he's up against. The God who protects his people. Even when the deck is stacked against him. Look down to verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap. And the pillar which I've set between you and me, this heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Once again, stones mark a significant event in Jacob's life. This time they serve to separate these families in this covenant or treaty ceremony. Just as it was with Abraham, so with with Jacob, a foreigner to God's covenant is here negotiating a a treaty with God's covenant partner because he sees his power on display. And once again, in Genesis, God's people are protected in surprising, impossible circumstances. If you're in Christ Jesus, hasn't God protected you? Physically, in many ways, but even more spiritually, from his own good wrath? Has he not protected you from the ways that you've wanted to go in your own life? Whether that was through severe mercies, or faithful brothers and sisters, or simply stopping some plans that you intended to make? Can't you say with Jacob, if the God of Abraham and Isaac had not been on my side? Look backwards. Start seeing how clearly God has protected you from harm that you would have done to yourself, if not for God. His past work is a sure predictor of his future performance. Jacob went to this foreign place with nothing. He's leaving with a family, provision, and a treaty negotiated by a man who set out to harm him. God powerfully and surprisingly protects his own. Centuries later, God's own people would feel stuck 
as slaves under the superpower of the world, cheated and mistreated for years. But this story would teach them God does not forget his promises. Even in the darkest days, our God is powerfully and surprisingly working for blessing. And so from the Exodus to the cross, God works out his greatest blessings when his people are at our weakest, when our enemy is at its greatest to accomplish his mighty salvation. And so it is with us. The local church may not look like much to this world, but she is strangely but surely God's focal point for his blessing and glory. Like Laban, the world still may appear more powerful, but remember, we worship the God who cannot be stolen, who speaks, who in Christ has bound himself to us with his presence and will not let go, who himself is working for our good providentially, who is protecting us in our present exile until that day when like with Jacob, in a very surprising way, he brings us home.